Hi, and welcome to the Quilt Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Frances Dow. Spring has arrived, and to celebrate all things new, we're sharing the first three chapters of my new quilting novel, Diary of a Mad Quilter, on today's episode. Normally, only paid members of the Quilt Fiction Story Guild have access to this story, but we're excited about it and thought you might be too. Set in contemporary Milton Falls, Ohio, Diary of a Mad Quilter is the story of avid quilter and retired third-grade teacher Marnie Fetzer. Marnie lives with her husband Daryl, who just retired from his engineering job, and she's still best friends with her high school BFF, Sheila. Son Sam lives on the other side of town with his wife and toddler twins, while daughter Katie makes her home in Atlanta. These days, Marnie's life revolves around quilts, quilts, and, well, quilts. We hope you enjoy the first few chapters enough to consider an annual subscription to the Story Guild. As a subscriber, you'll get weekly chapters of Friendship Album, Forget Me Not, bi-weekly updates to Diary of a Mad Quilter, along with access to the complete audio versions of Friendship Album 1933 and Aunt Jane of Kentucky, plus other Milton Falls stories and big discounts on everything in the Quilt Fiction shop. To celebrate having you on board, we'll send you a packet of Friendship Album-themed vintage postcards. Not ready to commit to an annual subscription? Consider a month-to-month subscription and convert to an annual membership at any time. Remember, if you're not subscribed to the Quilt Fiction Podcast, which is monthly and completely free, you can do so at quiltfiction.com. If you're signed up, please give us a review. And now, on with our story. Diary of a Mad Quilter, Episode 1 January 2nd I'm writing this on the porch, even though it's freezing. For the first big DIY project of his retirement, Daryl has decided to renovate the downstairs bathroom, and the racket he's making has driven me out of the house. All the porch furniture is in the garage, so I'm sitting on a red cooler and balancing this journal on my lap, which, future reader, is why my handwriting is so bad. I have mixed feelings about the bathroom remodel. On the one hand, that bathroom hasn't been updated since 1987, and I've been saying for years it's time for a new look. The days of country cottage blue are long gone, my friends. On the other hand, I can't imagine this turning out well. Daryl's carpentry skills are impressive. His plumbing know-how? A little less so. Still, I'm glad he has a project to keep him busy. He's been at loose ends ever since he retired two months ago. Well, that's not entirely true. Christmas kept him busy. He took Tyler and Taylor to every Christmas event in a 20-mile radius. Christmas parades and Christmas tree lightings and Santa trains and, oh, just everything. 
Jessica actually started hinting that Daryl could take care of the boys on the days that she works, but I put my foot down. I'm not against babysitting my grandchildren. Far from it. I am happy to take the boys for the day or even a weekend. But all day, three days a week, I'm not up for that. Not everyone feels that way, I know. A lot of the girls in my guild love having their grandchildren stay with them for weeks at a time, even if it interferes with their quilting. I don't let anything interfere with my quilting. Guild last night was interesting, as always. Pat was out of town, so our VP, Lynn, ran the show. I love Lynn, but she doesn't know how to control a crowd, and the Ashland County peacemakers can be a rowdy bunch given half a chance. It doesn't help that Marianne Knight and her gang get together for dinner and drinks at Applebee's before our monthly meetings. Better keep her away from the rotary cutters, Sheila whispered to me when we saw Marianne last night. It was true. The woman definitely looked tipsy. Anyway, Sheila and I got there a few minutes late. We actually pulled into the parking lot five minutes early, but we sat in Sheila's car discussing Carrie's latest experience on OkCupid. Suffice to say, it wasn't good. But then Carrie's always had bad luck with men. As Sheila says, her older two girls were always lucky in love. The younger two, not so much. I can't express how grateful I am for the fact that I'm not 20 and looking for romance on a dating app. I met Daryl at a Doobie Brothers concert in 1976 when you could still meet people by just going out with your friends. I remember everything like it happened yesterday. I innocently asked Sheila what a doobie was. I guess I was yelling a little so she could hear me over the music because everyone around us laughed. Everyone except for Daryl, who was standing behind me. He tapped my shoulder and said, A doobie is a marijuana cigarette. A lot of people don't know that. Judging by the laughter, I'd say a lot of people did know that, but I appreciated that Daryl was trying to make me feel okay about being so dumb. Anyway, there's a lot to discuss when you start talking about Carrie's love life, so Sheila and I ended up being a few minutes late to the meeting. When we walked in the room, Lynn was standing at the podium looking like she was thinking about retiring her vice presidency and moving to New Zealand. Marianne Knight and her gang were rummaging through the door prize bags, which is strictly for Bolton. Pat would have never stood for it, but Lynn looked at a loss as to what to do. She also looked like she was about to cry. I bet nobody would notice if I pocketed a couple of these fat quarters, Marianne said in a loud fake whisper to her friends. Just then, Betsy Wiggins burst into the room. Leave those alone, she bellowed as she hurried over to where Marianne was making her felonious intentions clear. 
How many times do I have to tell you, Marianne? Half of the fun of the door prizes is that no one knows what's in the bags. Oh, chillax, Betsy, Marianne said, because Marianne makes a point of using whatever she thinks the current slang is, although she's usually at least half a decade behind. I have to admit, I find it sort of funny, but at the same time, I don't want to encourage her by laughing. Marianne is one of those people best left unencouraged. I will not chillax. Betsy turned and waved to Lynn. You want to get started, hon? The natives are clearly restless. Lynn raised her hand and leaned toward the podium mic. Hi, uh, everybody. Hi. Um, could everybody sit down? Pat's visiting the new baby, so I, I guess that means I'm in charge. Janie had her baby, someone called, and when Lynn nodded, asked, Boy or girl? Boy, Lynn said, sounding more confident now. His name is Jackson, and he weighs nine pounds, seven ounces. That's a big baby. Somebody said approvingly. Everybody's named Jackson nowadays. Someone else said less approvingly. Um, anyway, Lynn continued, we've got a lot on the agenda today. First, Laura wanted to talk about dues, which are, um, due. From there, the meeting continued in the usual way. Reports, announcements, and reminders, etc., etc. Then Judy did a presentation on big stitch quilting. Suddenly, everyone is into hand quilting around here. I used to hand piece when the kids were little and I needed a project to carry around, but for the last 20 years, it's been nothing but Bernina, baby. As always, show and tell was my favorite part. There were more quilts than usual, lots of the latest Bonnie Hunter mystery quilts in progress. Joanna Laverty finally finished her Dear Jane, which was incredible. I don't know if I'd have the patience, or, quite frankly, the skills, to pull it off. Not to downplay my abilities, but Dear Jane is for Olympian quilters, are Michael Phelps and Mary Lou Rettens. I've always admired Joanna, but now I stand in awe of her. Uh-oh, I can hear Daryl yelling, better run. January 3rd. Plumber here all morning. Steve whistles while he works, which is cheerful, and maybe a tiny bit irritating, but what do I care? Steve let Daryl assist him, which meant I got to quilt uninterrupted until lunchtime. Sheila says she knows the new year has truly begun when I pledge my troth to the Peacemaker's annual block of the month quilt. I honestly believe there's an actual chance I might finish all of the blocks this time. It could happen. I'm almost done with January, and the month has just begun. I'm on a roll. At lunch, Steve told us how he became a plumber. It turns out he has a degree in economics, but he hated working in an office all day. When he realized he could make as much 
or more. As a plumber, he quit his finance job and started his own plumbing company. He's never looked back. I worked as a carpenter back in the day. Daryl told him, "I loved it, but I needed better health benefits once Marnie and I got married. But now, well, I'm ready to pick up a hammer again." Hence the bathroom remodel, Steve said. Yeah, but it turns out I don't know a lot about plumbing, Daryl said. You know just enough to be dangerous, Steve assured him. So, what else are you going to do now that you're retired? Daryl shrugged. I don't know. I think I might need a hobby, one that's less expensive than remodeling the entire house. Maybe I'll get Marnie to show me how to make a quilt. Steve laughed, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure that Daryl was joking. I also wasn't a hundred percent sure that a quilt-making habit was less expensive than remodeling a house. I tried to go back to sewing after lunch, but I decided I needed to write in my diary instead. Does Daryl really want to make quilts? Would I mind if he did? Would he get his own sewing machine? Would he want to work in my sewing room? Would I end up stabbing him with my scissors, not the good ones? Daryl has always enjoyed my quilts and other people's as well. He goes with me and Sheila to the local quilt shows, and we've been to Quilt Week in Paducah twice. But he's never talked about wanting to make one. The thing is. I could never discourage another human being from quilting. What's more wonderful than making a quilt and then making another one? But I'm not sure I'm woman enough to welcome my husband into my quilting world or my sewing room. Does that make me an awful human being? January fifth. Something very strange happened today. Daryl bought a featherweight. I was looking around on Craigslist for a leaf blower, and there it was. He said when he came home this afternoon, seventy-five bucks and in good condition. I don't know, Marnie. It just spoke to me. I mean, look at it. It's a beauty. I knew it would be just from the picture. He'd just gotten back from Trader Joe's, where he met the seller in the parking lot for the exchange. Now the featherweight was sitting on the middle of the kitchen table. I had to admit that it really was beautiful. It's a 1962 Singer, Daryl told me, circling the table so he could admire his purchase from all sides. A classic. I didn't know they were still making these in 1962. I didn't either. I said, "I didn't even know there were electric featherweights. I thought you had to—I don't know—push on a pedal or a treadle or something to make them go." Daryl gave me a sympathetic look. Oh, honey, the Singer featherweight has always been electric, from the very first ones that were manufactured in 1933. 
So, are you going to put it on display or take it apart or what? I asked, turning to the sink where the lunch dishes were waiting for someone to wash them. It would be interesting to see what its insides look like. There was a moment of silence before Daryl replied, I'm going to use it to sew. I've been thinking about it. And I've decided I'd like to learn how to quilt. I thought I could start with new quilts for the twins. Jessica says the ones you gave them for their birthday last year are starting to get worn out. That's because the boys drag them everywhere, I told him. But I can make them new quilts. I don't mind. I don't know why I said that. One of my New Year's resolutions was no more quilts for the twins until they're old enough to appreciate quilts. Say when they're 30, maybe 35. Okay, I know I'll never stick to that, but I thought maybe I'd wait at least until Halloween. You've got too many other things to do, Daryl said. Don't forget it's almost time to start on your show quilt. Big sigh, my show quilt. The deadline to enter quilts into the Peacemaker's annual show is June 1st, and I don't have the vaguest idea of what I want to make. It has to be original, and I want it to be amazing. So far, inspiration has eluded me. Still, I need to get started. And making quilts for Taylor and Tyler would definitely get in the way of making any progress. I looked at the singer. It was the first time I ever had anything resembling mixed feelings about a sewing machine. Where exactly did Daryl plan to put it? He wasn't planning on leaving it in the kitchen, was he? He wasn't planning on finding a place for it in my sewing room, was he? And if so, could this marriage be saved? In case you're worried, I'm going to make a sewing space in the corner of the man cave, Daryl said. He began packing the machine back into its box. I have no plans for taking over your sewing room. I laughed an unconvincing laugh. Oh, you'd be more than welcome to work in my sewing room. Of course, I do listen to podcasts the whole time I'm in there. You know, like the off-kilter quilt and post-menopausal and loving it. You're making those up, Daryl said, laughing. Not the first one, but okay. The second one is make-believe, I told him although I bet there are some great podcasts for those of us who have been through the change. Daryl held up a hand. I've been through menopause once. I don't want to relive it. Ah, you witnessed my menopause, I corrected him. That's very different than going through it. I took notes, Marnie, Daryl said. It was bad. He was right. It was bad. Everybody suffered. Daryl started for his study. So, you want to go fabric shopping in the morning? I'm buying. Free fabric, I said, 
filling up the sink with hot water. Say no more. The cozy quilter opens at ten. And then I realized Daryl was about to learn how much fabric really costs. This could be bad. Really bad. January 6th. Katie called tonight. She's decided to attend QuiltCon for the first time. It makes me so happy that my daughter has caught the quilting bug. I have to admit that I'm still getting used to the fact that she's a modern quilter. There are a few modern quilters in the Peacemakers, and sometimes I think they find the rest of us boring. Behind the times. Hmm, maybe I'm projecting. Maybe I think my quilts are boring and behind the times. Something to think about, I guess. But even if it's true, I don't see myself becoming a modern quilter anytime soon. I love traditional quilts. I love blocks. I love patterns. I need patterns. When it comes to math and measuring, I should not be left to my own devices. Don't get me wrong, I really do love Katie's modern quilts. She leans toward a bright and happy palette, and last summer she learned how to sew curved pieces. I'm careful not to say this to her, but I already see her trending toward more traditional quilts. When she moved into her new apartment in Atlanta, I sent her an antique orange peel quilt I'd found on eBay with the caveat that the cats could not use it as their bed. Sheila laughed when I told her that. Those cats own Katie, she said, which is the absolute truth. Anyway, when Katie opened the package, she called me right away. You've gone modern, she squealed, and you're repurposing old fabric. That is so cool, Mom. That's when I explained that the orange peel quilt was probably made in the 1920s or 30s, and there was nothing modern about it. Or, to put it another way, which I didn't do with Katie because we were having such a nice conversation, a lot of modern quilts strike me as pretty old-fashioned. That's a conversation for another day. Katie wants me to join her at QuiltCon, and maybe I will. After all, it's not often I get to spend one-on-one -on -one time with my daughter, though it's true I've seen her a lot more since her divorce. Poor Katie. She and Matthew were so happy before they got married and so miserable from the moment they said, I do. Six years of trying to work something out that so clearly wasn't going to ever work out. Well, I don't want to dwell on it. It's too sad. And now Matthew's getting married again, and his girlfriend is pregnant. Stop. Let it go. So anyway, Katie called because she was excited about her decision to go to QuiltCon and excited about quilts in general. I just wanted to thank you, Mom. Thank you for giving me a sewing machine when my life was falling apart. It saved me. I understood perfectly. 
Quilting got me through two miscarriages and Sam's leukemia when he was 12. Back in the days before childhood leukemia was still really scary. I mean, I know it's scary now. No kind of cancer isn't scary, especially when it's your kid who has it. But back then, chances of surviving weren't as good as they are these days. Anyway, I spent a lot of time sitting next to Sam's hospital bed stitching simple blocks, nine patches and four squares, just anything to keep me from melting into a puddle of anxiety. Okay, why did I bring this up? I'm making myself sad. Oh yes, my happy daughter and her happy quilts. She's been sending pictures all day of quilts she wants to make this year. I showed a few to Daryl at lunch, and you know what he said? Some of these look like they were inspired by Amish quilts, don't you think? I nearly choked on my turkey sandwich. How do you know about Amish quilts? I've been doing research, quilt history, that sort of thing. Where did you say Katie's going? QuiltCon, next month. It's the annual Modern Quilt Guild show. Daryl picked up his phone and started tapping. Let's see. Hashtag QuiltCon. Yep, here we are. What are you searching? I asked. Instagram, Daryl told me. Does Katie have an Instagram account? I shrugged. Probably text her and find out. More tapping, a few seconds of waiting, and then a ping. Yep, she sure does, Daryl said, and then tapped some more. Quilt Diva Katie. I like it. He spent the next five minutes scrolling through pictures of modern quilts, Katie's, and others. Lots of murmurs of delight and lots of affirmative head shaking. Finally, he looked up at me and said, I like modern quilting. It's a very fresh aesthetic. Sure, in its way, I told him as I stole a potato chip from his plate. I'm going to make one. Do you have any solid color fabrics I could borrow? It looks like the modern quilters don't use many prints. Katie says that's changing, I informed him as I stood up. But I have a bunch of solids. I'll go grab some for you. Great, Daryl said, and there was something in his voice that told me he'd be in his sewing room. Scratch that man cave until dinner. January 16th. Daryl has joined the Milton Falls Modern Quilt Guild. As soon as he told me this morning, I texted Sheila. Lunch at Barb's Barbecue. High noon. That's our international distress signal. We only go to Barb's in cases of emergency, when we really need the calories. I'll be there, she texted back. You can count on me. He joined a guild? Sheila asked as soon as we sat down, tilting her head as though confused. I know he's enjoying the quilting thing, but a guilt? Not just any guilt, I reminded her. 
the Milton Falls Modern Quilt Guild. Well, I've heard it's a very nice group, Sheila assured me. Carol Wolseley is a member. I shook my head in disbelief. How many guilds does Carol Wolseley belong to? Sheila started ticking off names. The Milton Falls Modern Guild, the Milton Falls Evening Stars, the Central Ohio Textile Artist Circle, and maybe the Columbus City Limits Quilters? She might have stopped going to their meetings, though, because of the traffic. Of course she's in the Peacemakers, but we meet the same night as the Modern Guild, so she's been alternating between the two. All I know is that ever since she got divorced last year, she's signed up for every fiber-related club in the Tri-County area. Well, ask her if there are any other men at the Modern Guild, I told her, chewing on a hush puppy. Not that Daryl would care if he was the only one. He's very comfortable in the company of women, Sheila agreed. But not too comfortable. That's not what I'm saying. I know what you're saying, I assured her. He has two older sisters. He's been well-trained. Sheila piled some more slaw onto her pulled pork sandwich. So, do you think he's interested in modern quilts because of Katie? Maybe. I think it's a combination of factors, actually. There's the design angle, the mid-century modern thing, It suits Daryl's love of clean lines and lack of clutter. That makes sense, given he's a math guy, Sheila said, handing me a paper napkin. You've got barbecue sauce on your chin, honey. So tell me, what's your real problem with Daryl joining a guild? I shrugged. I, I don't know if I have a problem, honestly. I just feel like he's, well, invading your space. A little bit? I sighed. You think I'd be happy that my husband is interested in what I'm interested in. And it's not like he's joining my guild. I mean, can you imagine? I'm a certain way at guild. Not like I'm a totally different person at guild, but I'm... something. You're sassier, Sheila informed me. A little silly sometimes. You are more like you were in high school. I was an idiot in high school, I reminded her. I dated guys like Mark Herndon. Oh, we were all idiots in high school. But you were a really fun idiot. When you're with Daryl, well, you're a wife and, and a mom. A good wife and a good mom. But not as fun as you are in Guild less prone to playing pranks on people. I nodded. It's true. Guild brings out the prankster in me. Sheila reached over and grabbed a hush puppy from my plate. You and Daryl have one of the best marriages I know. You support each other. You take care of each other. But you've always had your own things. You've always given each other space. Now that he's retired, things are going to be less spacey. I think it's great he's taking up quilting, although you know this featherweight machine thing is going to become an obsession, right? It already is, I said. 
He's got an eye on a Singer Featherweight 221 he found on eBay, made in 1933 and in mint condition. He's such a guy, Sheila said, shaking her head. Plus, he's researching quilt history, I told her. It's all we talk about at dinner these days. Such a guy, Sheila repeated. I felt better after lunch. It was like going to confession or therapy. I always thought Sheila would have made a great therapist. Instead, she managed a bridal shop and raised four daughters on her own after her husband left her for another woman. That happened nearly 20 years ago, and I still want to hunt Kevin down and beat him with a stick. Okay, Marnie, let's walk that back. I am a nonviolent person and a former third grade teacher, but I still feel angry about what Kevin did. A woman like Sheila should have been treated like a queen, not an old Kleenex discarded as casually as, well, an old Kleenex. I've tried to fix her up on blind dates over the years, but she won't have it. She's got work, she's got daughters, she's got quilts. Her life is full, she says. But it could be fuller, couldn't it? Doesn't it have a man-sized space in it? A space in the shape of a good man. A kind man. A man that looks a lot like Harrison Ford. Maybe I should make it one of my New Year's resolutions to find that man and deliver him to Sheila's doorstep. Yes, I'll add that to my list. Lose 20 pounds, exercise more, finish this year's block of the month quilt, and fix Sheila up with Prince Charming. Or Han Solo. Either will do. January 19th. Some big news today. Big news. I can't tell anyone. Not even Sheila. This is going to be tough. Okay, here goes. When Jessica came over this afternoon and told me that she and Sam were thinking about going on a second honeymoon, I thought they were looking for an excuse to get a little time away from the twins. I wouldn't blame them. Not that Tyler and Taylor aren't wonderful boys. Really, they couldn't be more adorable, especially now that Taylor is over his biting phase. But they're three, and three is hard, much harder than two, in my opinion. Besides that, now that Jessica's back at work part-time, she's more stressed than ever. If you ask me, she should go back to work full-time. I know that's an unpopular opinion in some circles, but the fact is Jessica loves her job as a health educator. She loves going to retirement communities and sorority houses and middle schools to talk about wellness and mindfulness and how important it is to wash your hands to stop the spread of colds and flus and COVID. It makes her really happy, and a happy mom is the best kind of mom there is. Besides, I worked full-time and raised two kids, and they both turned out fine. Of course, it helped that I taught third grade and the kids went to my school for the first six years of their education. After the last bell rang, they came to my classroom and drew or did their homework or helped with little jobs like stapling papers together until I was ready to go home. 
Boy, did Katie ever love stapling. Anyway, Jessica came over with the boys this afternoon after she picked them up from daycare. They'd both made pictures for Pop Pop and wanted to give them to him in person. At first, I suspected that the real reason Jessica stopped by was that she needed someone to make her a snack before she went home and cooked dinner. Or she knew that if she hung out here for a while, Sam would get home first and he'd have to start dinner. Jessica and Sam subscribe to a meal box service and whoever gets home first on the days they're both working is in charge of pulling the box out of the fridge, reading the enclosed directions, and putting the meal together. Daryl thinks a meal box subscription is a waste of money. How hard is it to boil spaghetti and heat up some sauce? But I think meal boxes are brilliant if you can afford them. Sure, spaghetti is easy, cheap, and it tastes good, but you can't eat it every night. Or you can, but as the Fetzer family learned over the years, you can also come to hate spaghetti with a passion verging on the operatic. We're thinking about going to the Caribbean, Jessica told me as she dipped a carrot into a bowl of ranch dressing. Somewhere affordable where we can relax for a few days. We're looking at the third week of February. I carried a container of hummus to the kitchen table. Will your mom take care of the boys? Jessica crunched on her carrot a moment before replying, Well, I've brought it up with her. And I sat down across from Jessica. I was only asking to be polite. I already knew the answer. Jessica's mom, Abby, is not the kind of grandmother who takes the kids for a long weekend or even a long afternoon. You know mom, Jessica said with a sheepish shrug. She's got a lot going on. She and Billy are thinking about spending February and March in Florida. Billy's son has a house in St. Petersburg, but he travels all the time, so they'd mostly have the place to themselves. You could drop off the boys with them in Florida, I suggested. The twins would love the beach. Jessica sighed. Billy's not great with kids. I mean, he likes kids. She stopped herself. No, he doesn't. He doesn't hate kids. He just doesn't. Okay, he hates kids. That's too bad, I said. And no fun for your mom, either. To be honest, Marnie, my mom is still having a hard time accepting the fact that she's a grandmother, Jessica told me, stabbing another carrot into the ranch dressing. I mean, she's only 54, which is young these days when it comes to having grandkids. A lot of her friends still have children in high school. 54 is young for grandkids these days, I agreed, keeping my tone neutral. Mom really does love the boys, Jessica insisted. But I think she'd rather be their fun aunt than their granny. In all honesty, I'm not Abby's biggest fan. Like a lot of former prom queens, Jessica's mom is having a hard time with growing older. She's still an attractive woman. I mean, what I wouldn't give for those cheekbones. And she can still turn heads when she walks into a room, especially if the room is dimly lit. 
But like a lot of women who were great beauties in their younger days, she never bothered to develop a winning personality to go with her winning looks. I think it's fair to say that she's the teeniest bit self-centered. I stood up to grab a seltzer from the fridge. We'll take the boys when you guys go on your trip. Daryl can teach them how to quilt, and then they can teach you. That would be so great, Jessica said, and then to my surprise, her eyes filled with tears. You, you and Daryl are so, you're just so great, which is when she started to cry. At first, I thought she was feeling sad about how she couldn't depend on her own parents to help out. Her dad lives in California, nice guy, but pretty distant. After a moment, I realized something else was going on. Honey, what is it? I asked, pulling a chair next to hers. Is everything okay? Jessica looked around the room as though she were making sure no one else was there. I'm pregnant, she whispered, and I'm already so tired. I don't know how I can handle another baby, Marnie. How's Sam? I asked, taking her hand and giving it a squeeze. I was trying to keep my own emotions at bay. Another grandbaby! Oh, I could hardly wait to call Sheila and give her the news. But now was not the time to jump up and down with joy. He's over the moon, but he doesn't want to announce it until I'm through the first trimester. So, a month from now. And that's why you're going to the Caribbean? A last hurrah before the pregnancy really takes over? Yeah, Jessica pulled out a tissue from her purse and blew her nose before continuing. Sam thinks a relaxing vacation will help me gear up for what's next. Definitely, I told her. You'll come back feeling great. How do you feel now? Okay, not as sick as I felt with the twins, but still pretty tired. Daryl and I will help you guys as much as we can, I said. We'll take the boys when you need a break, and we can help pay for a full-time preschool. Just then, Taylor ran into the room. I'm maximum starving, Grammy. Feed me. Can you say please, please? Jessica prompted. Please, please feed me, Grammy, Taylor revised. Pop-pop says you have animal crackers, and I can have as many as I want. I looked at Jessica. She's pretty serious about limiting the boy's sugar intake, especially late in the afternoon. Maybe some veggies instead, Tay-Tay, Jessica said. And then she rolled her eyes and laughed. Oh, who cares? Animal crackers for everyone. I leaned over and kissed Jessica on the top of her head before going to get the animal crackers out of the pantry. I'll admit that there are Things my daughter-in-law does that drive me a little bit nuts. She takes the boys to their pediatrician at the drop of a hat, and she's way too worried about gluten. She overdoes it on Christmas and is a wreck by Christmas morning, which means we're all wrecks by Christmas morning. She already has the twins signed up for violin lessons this summer. Who needs violin lessons when they're four? 
and she's thinking about putting them in a preschool where the teachers only speak French. I could go on. But whenever I start getting irritated, I remember that Jessica's doing everything she can to be a great mom, to be a better mom than the one she had. And anyone can see from these happy, healthy boys that she's doing an amazing job. Plus, she gives me gift cards to the cozy quilter for Christmas. So what's not to love? January 20th. Sheila and I met for coffee this morning at the Linway's diner. She could tell right away that I was keeping something from her. Spill, she said as soon as she slipped out of her coat. When I started to protest I didn't have any news, she rolled her eyes. Oh, please, Marnie, it's all over your face. What's all over my face? I asked, neglecting to make eye contact. I picked up the menu instead. Sarah, probably. Daryl made pecan waffles for breakfast again. I think I've gained five pounds since he retired. Boy, the French toast here is so good. Is it too early for brunch? Sheila tapped her fork against the salt shaker. You're stalling, Marnie. I've known you since you were 14, and I know when you're keeping something from me. I looked across the table at my oldest friend. Fifty years next September, and I don't think I've ever been able to keep a secret from her. There was no reason to try now. So I spilled my news, and Sheila spilled the glass of water the waitress had just set in front of her. I've got a lap full of ice, and I don't care. That's how excited I am, she exclaimed. A new baby. We've been needing one of those for a while now. Three years since Taylor and Tyler, I said, counting on my fingers. Four years since Marco. Almost five years since Marco, Sheila corrected me. I hinted around the other day to Grace that Marco might like a baby brother or sister, but she wasn't biting. Marco's very happy being the sole tyrant of our abode, is how she put it. Remember how Grace was always asking to be an only child? I asked as I mixed half and half into my coffee. I always wondered what she hoped you would do. Sell the other three? Sheila snorted. That's exactly what she hoped I would do. And don't think I didn't consider it. Sometimes I wonder how I made it through those years when the girls were little. I couldn't wait for them to become teenagers so they'd stop talking to me. It was a little chaotic, I agreed. Chaotic? Sheila shook her head. It was a war zone. Anyway, I think Marco is it for Grace and Rob. How about Suzy? Suzy, Suzanne, is Sheila's oldest daughter. She's got two kids with her partner, Sarah, and has been dangling the possibility of a third in front of Sheila for a couple of years now. Sheila held up her hands in a who-knows kind of gesture. Sussy likes the idea of three, but Sarah says she's done. Her therapy practice is doing really well, and she and Sussy have finally paid off all the credit card debt. Besides, things are calmer these days, now that Willa is in the third grade and Henry's in first. It's so nice when things start to settle down. I can still remember the night I told Katie it was time for bed, and she went, just like that. 
put on her nightgown and brushed her teeth and called out goodnight from the top of the stairs. I felt like a free woman. I didn't feel that way until Carrie went to college, Sheila said. Everyone kept asking me how I was doing after she left, like someone had died. I had to pretend like I was in mourning because all of my children had flown the nest. When you were actually celebrating, with a lot of pizza and Cabernet Sauvignon, if I recall correctly. It was glorious, Sheila said. I gained seven pounds in two weeks, but it was still glorious. The waitress came to refill our coffee, and Sheila ordered a donut. Unlike you, I didn't have pecan waffles for breakfast, she told me. I'm making up for lost calories. You know I'm going to eat half of any donut that lands on this table, I told her. I know, she replied. Maybe I should order two, which is exactly what she did. January 22nd. We had dinner at Sam and Jessica's tonight. Sunday family dinners used to be a regular thing before the twins were born, but two rambunctious babies in need of their parents' full attention got in the way of any kind of meaningful conversation, or any kind of meaningful eating, to be honest. Of course, the real problem was that Jessica isn't the sort of woman who can have people in her home and not serve them. And she's not the sort of guest who can just sit there and be served. At some point, Daryl and I realized that no matter where we had Sunday dinner, here, there, or at a restaurant, Jessica was going to run herself ragged trying to be the absolute best wife-slash-daughter-in-law-slash-mother in the world. We decided it would be a kindness to stop making Sunday dinner a thing. So, when Jessica invited us for tonight, I thought at first that she was trying to reestablish the Sunday dinner tradition now that the boys are old enough to be bribed into silence with screen time. I was all for it, especially because we hardly ever see Sam these days. He's so busy with work. Jessica stops by with the boys once or twice a week, and it's not unusual for me and Daryl to take the twins to the park on Saturday mornings. But Sam's always at the office. I still can't get over the idea that my scruffy, pick-up truck-driving, wannabe organic farmer is now the social media and marketing manager at the Acorn Advertising Group and wears stylish suits and shiny brown shoes to work. There was an article about Acorn in the business pages of the local paper last year, and I didn't recognize Sam in the staff photo. He's the tall one with the sleek beard in the back row. Daryl said, pointing my son out to me. Turns out our boy cleans up pretty good. I called Jessica this morning to see if I could bring anything, but she was insistent that she would do it all. You've been so great to us, Marnie. I want to show you how much I appreciate you and Daryl. And guess what? I'm making everything from scratch. Are you sure that's a good idea? I asked. I wasn't trying to be unkind. It's just that Jessica hasn't successfully cooked an entire meal since 2016. I've been practicing, Jessica insisted. It's going to be wonderful. Just you wait and see. 
When I got off the phone with Jessica, I immediately called Sheila. She's got an ulterior motive for inviting us over. I could hear it in her voice. Plus, she's cooking. Are you sure? Sheila asked. Some people say cooking when they mean picking up from Whole Foods. Jessica could be one of those people. Jessica has never shied away from revealing her sources, I replied. She's tried cooking and realized she's better at ordering in. No shame in that. Play to your strengths, I say. So, why is she cooking tonight? There must be a reason. I don't know, but I'd make something to have in the fridge when you get home, Sheila suggested. A frittata you could heat up in the microwave, or a cob salad. It was an excellent suggestion. After lunch, I made chicken salad and stuck a post-it note on it that read, Keep out, so that Daryl wouldn't eat it for his mid-afternoon snack. How many things have I made over the years? Snacks for book club, a pie for the next day's bake sale, only to find them half-eaten or totally polished off when I needed them. It's heartbreaking. It really is. I realized on the drive over that it's been a while since we'd gone to Sam and Jessica's. Here's another thing about having a perfectionist daughter-in-law. She won't invite you over if her house isn't sparkling and put to rights. I tried a drive-by drop-in once, and I'm pretty sure Jessica has yet to recover from it. Anyway, their house is in what's referred to as New Milton Falls, although officially there's only one undivided Milton Falls. Our part of Milton Falls is the older part of town, which was out of fashion until about 10 years ago when someone opened a restaurant in an abandoned apartment store on West Main Street. Parsnip quickly became famous for its grass-fed cheeseburgers and its prices, which at the time were outrageously high for our small city. Now that all of downtown has been revitalized with cocktail lounges and tapas bars, no one thinks twice about a $30 entree. Well, Daryl thinks twice, which is why we never go downtown to eat. The fact is, we lack the requisite tattoos to get served in most of the hot spots. New Milton Falls is a tangle of subdivisions that have grown up on the western outreaches of Ashland County in the last two decades. First came Grangerfield Mall, and then acre after acre of farmland got bought up by developers and turned into shiny suburbs, Grangerfield Heights, Pressler Estates, and so on. Sam and Jessica live in Pewter Ridge, a name just made to be bodolarized by fifth graders. Theirs is one of those houses that looks great in its every detail. The black maple hardwoods all through the downstairs, the metallic tiled kitchen backsplash, but lacks a certain solidity. Daryl calls it popsicle stick construction. Something smelled good when Sam opened the door and welcomed us inside. Is Jessica making pot roast? I asked. Whatever it is, I can't wait to try it. It's oxtail soup, Sam informed us from a new recipe. 
a new and overly complicated recipe. To be honest, it would have been faster to kill an ox and roast it over a fire pit. Are there actual tails in it? Daryl asked as he handed Sam his coat. From actual oxen? There are tails, but they're from cows. The boys aren't as traumatized by this idea as you'd think they'd be. As if on cue, the twins came running into the front hall, yelling, Grammy! Pop, pop! They proceeded to tell us all of the latest preschool gossip and then ran off to watch DVDs of their favorite TV show, one that features a kind cat and several felonious mice. It never fails to crack them up. I'm happy to report that the soup was delicious, and even better, Jessica seemed relatively sane when she sat down at the table. I was going to make rolls, but Sam talked me out of it, she told us. I hope you don't mind that the bread is from Crumb. I love Crumb, I assured her. They make wonderful scones there. Marnie makes me go buy a dozen whenever she and Sheila have one of their Downton Abbey marathons. Daryl added. After we finished our soup and bread, Jessica served us lemon meringue pie for dessert. Confession, this is also from Crumb. I know I promised you a home-cooked dinner, but sometimes you have to outsource. This was a level of emotional maturity that I never expected from Jessica on the domestic front. Maybe that's why my defenses were down when the real reason for dinner was revealed. So, we think we found a great deal on a Caribbean trip, Jessica announced as she brought out a pot of freshly brewed decaf. We'd leave on the 17th. How is that for you? I looked at Daryl and shrugged. I'm pretty sure that works for me. How about you? I don't see why not, Daryl said cheerfully. I'm looking forward to spending a couple of days with the boys. They can help me get my garden plot ready and start my veggie seeds indoors. That would be great, Jessica said, but there was something in her voice, something that sounded more like, that would be great, but... Dad, we were hoping you guys could take care of the boys here, Sam said, cutting to the chase. It's our first time away, and we think they'd do better in a familiar environment. And we're going to be gone for a week, and they'll be out of school the whole time. I stared at Jessica. I'm sorry. I didn't catch what you just said. Sam translated. We've decided to go for a week instead of a long weekend. As it happens, the only week we can both get off work is the week of teacher conferences. I know, I know, teacher conferences for preschool is crazy, but it is what it is. The boys are out of school all week, so you won't be getting much of a break from them, I'm afraid. That all sounds good to me, Daryl said. We'll just move in here for a week and take care of the boys. We'll give them tons of junk food and they'll have a ball. You know we've got them on a gluten-free diet now, right? Jessica asked. I'll leave a list of what they can and can't eat. It'll be fine, Daryl insisted as we were driving home. It'll be like a vacation for us, staying in someone else's house. Someone else's house where we have to cook and clean and take care of toddlers, I clarified. On the whole, I'd rather go to Hawaii.
Daryl was quiet for a moment, and then he sighed. Yeah, me too. January 23rd. After a long conversation over a full complement of adult beverages, Daryl and I have decided that spending a week with our grandsons at their house instead of ours is going to be so much fun that we'll be begging Sam and Jessica to stay away for another week just so we can keep the party going. Sometimes lying to yourself is the only way to survive. January 28th. Sheila is irritated with me for not being more excited about spending a week taking care of my grandchildren. I would love that opportunity, she told me as we were driving to the cozy quilter. I have been begging for that opportunity since the minute Willa was born eight years ago. And I was the grandmother fully on board with Suzy and Sarah having children. Sarah's mom still refuses to acknowledge that Sarah is gay. But I rolled with the punches, baby. I welcomed Sarah from the first time Suzy brought her home, and I threw Suzy the biggest baby shower the world has ever seen. And still, the longest they've let me take care of those children is two days. Two measly days. Well, that's because they never go anywhere, I pointed out. And when they do go somewhere, they take the children. Sheila huffed and then continued. Don't get me started on Grace and Rob. They've never left Marco alone for a minute since the day he was born. They're afraid someone might contaminate him with non-educational toys. I've got a thought. Why don't you take care of Taylor and Tyler for a week? Sheila's eyes widened. Do you mean it? I'd do it in a second. We glanced at each other and started to giggle. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I asked as I turned my eyes back to the road. If you're thinking I could stay at Sam and Jessica's with you and Daryl, then honey, we are having the exact same thought. Which is when we both shouted, Slumber party! at the top of our lungs. We'll make it like summer camp, Sheila declared as we started feverishly hatching plans. Like when we were CITs at Camp Flyaway. We could earn merit badges, I declared, and have sing-alongs. Sheila looked at me, her eyes even wider than before. Let's buy stuff to make sit-upons. Sit-upons, we shrieked at the exact same time. February 1st. Steve the plumber here again today. Of course, he stayed for lunch. I've always invited him to stay for lunch whenever he's here to do some plumbing work for us. Today, it was the leaky faucet in the upstairs bathroom, which we still call the kids' bathroom, even though we've been empty nesters for years now, our adult children with bathrooms of their own elsewhere. I figure a well-fed plumber is a happy plumber, and who doesn't need a happy plumber in their lives? Besides, he and Daryl get along so well. Like a lot of men I know, Daryl doesn't have many friends. He used to have friends at work, and he didn't seem to want or need any more outside of work. 
When he came home at the end of the day, he liked to relax and watch TV or read. He wasn't looking for buddies to go bowling with or hang out with in bars. Until a few years ago, he and his best friend from college, Brian, went on an annual camping trip every May. But then Brian moved to Canada with his second wife and the camping trip stopped. So now he's got Steve the Plumber. And it turns out Steve the Plumber also likes to work on small machines. So he and Daryl started a lively conversation over tuna sandwiches about Daryl's new obsession with featherweight sewing machines. Daryl, show him the one you got off of Craigslist for $75, I said as I delivered a basket of chips to the table. I turned to Steve. It's a 1962 Singer, absolutely pristine. Steve's eyes went wide and he let out a whistle. You got a 1962 Singer for 75 bucks? Whoever sold it to you had zero idea of what they were doing. Daryl didn't reply right away. He pretended to be chewing, but I could tell he was fake chewing. He was chewing as a stalling tactic. Like if he did it long enough, maybe someone would change the topic in the meantime. Why do I feel like I haven't got the whole story on that singer? I asked, sitting down and reaching for a chip. Fess up, Daryl. Daryl finally fake swallowed and then looked at me and shrugged. Turns out that the price was a typo, he admitted. The guy meant to list it for 750 Or at least he said he meant to list it for 750 Did you pay 750 I asked, shaking my head in disbelief, sure that his answer would be yes. No, I did not, Daryl said. I said I wouldn't give him a penny more than 500 He turned to Steve. When I got home, I looked it up. The guy could have gotten twice that. $500? I did my best to keep my voice steady. Without even discussing it with me? Without telling me the truth when you got home? Daryl smiled his most charming smile at me. It was one of those ask for permission or ask for forgiveness situations. Only I guess I didn't do either. I was just so excited, Marnie. You know how that is, right? Getting really excited and making a rash purchase. Okay, maybe I did. I mean, there's a Bernina 550 QE in my sewing room that I got at Paducah four years ago without really meaning to. It just sort of followed me out of the building. Besides, Daryl continued, sounding a touch defensive, why shouldn't I be able to spend a little money on myself from time to time? Even $500 is a steal if the machine is in good condition. Steve told me, like he was pleading Daryl's case. Daryl could turn around and sell it for twice as much. I nodded, deciding to let it go, at least in the moment. Let she who is without sin throw the first stone and all that. Still, I didn't love that Daryl didn't tell me what had happened. We aren't the kind of couple who keep secrets from each other. 
Not that I've shown Daryl every receipt I've ever brought home from the cozy quilter. I assume a don't-ask-don't-tell policy on all purchases under $100. Okay, under $250. They all show up on the credit card bill anyway. And okay, I'm the one who pays the credit card bill, but Daryl's free to look it over whenever he wants. I don't know, there's something about the situation that makes me slightly uneasy. Although I suppose if the worst thing Daryl ever does is spend $425 more on a sewing machine than he led me to believe, it's not the worst thing in the world. But it's not the best thing in the world either. On a brighter note, it occurred to me that Steve the plumber is cute. Really cute. Be not Harrison Ford cute, but close enough. I'm not sure how old he is. Mid-forties, maybe? So, younger than Sheila, sure. But I don't think age matters so much these days. He doesn't wear a wedding ring, but maybe that's common for plumbers. They see enough wedding rings go down the drain. They might leave theirs at home just to be on the safe side. But if he's not married, well, he's intelligent and good company and cute. And if I may be so bold to note, he smells good. That's not nothing. One thing I know for sure, the man makes good money. Not that Sheila cares about that sort of thing. But it would be nice if she could find a man who would take her to dinner and not insist that they split the bill, which is what happened the last time she went on a date, way back in 2017. Steve the plumber. That's really not a bad idea. February 6th. Guild last night, Teddy Pruitt gave a lecture on string quilts, and it was one of the best programs we've had in ages. My favorite programs are ones where the presenters are funny, tell lots of stories, and actually teach me something I don't already know. Teddy ticked all three boxes. Sheila made fun of me for taking notes, but quilt history is interesting. They should teach it at school. Katie keeps saying she's going to get me a bumper sticker that says, Quilt history is women's history. I wish she would. I would stick it on my bumper with pride. Anyway, one of the most interesting things Teddy said was that if you make string blocks, the blocks will never be pretty. But they'll become pretty when you put them together into a quilt top. She called it kaleidoscope magic. Transferring the bland into the beautiful. I really love that idea. She showed us all sorts of quilts from her collections, and you could see it, how the individual blocks didn't seem so special on their own, but pieced together? Amazing. Did I mention that I wasn't the only one who had guild tonight? Daryl and I went to different meetings, but we both had guild. It feels strange to write that. I'd just gotten home from the peacemakers meeting when a text from Daryl popped up on my phone. I'm at Mrs. Miniver's cocktail lounge on Walnut Street talking about quilts with some new friends. Uber over if you want to join us.
It was 9.30, precariously close to my bedtime, so I texted back my regrets. Still, I thought I might wait up for him. To be honest, I was dying to hear how things had gone at his meeting. Who was there? What did they talk about? Did people make Daryl feel welcome? Clearly, they must have if he was bar hopping downtown on a Monday night. I ended up falling asleep on the couch, an ancient issue of Quilter's newsletter resting softly on my face. How I miss Quilter's newsletter. The click of Daryl's key in the lock woke me, and I was struggling to push myself up from the couch cushions when he walked into the living room, a bulging plastic bag in each hand. You're up late, he said, setting the bags on the floor and shrugging off his jacket. How were the peacemakers tonight? I stretched my arms over my head and let out a big yawn before answering. Same as always, Pat was back at the helm, and she managed to keep the rowdy contingent under control. How were the modern quilters? Amazing. Daryl flopped into the easy chair across from the couch. A very nice woman named Gretchen did a presentation on a Japanese stitching technique called boro. It was fascinating. And the show-and-tell, Marnie. Well, I have to tell you, I saw some beautiful quilts tonight. Plus, there was a fabric swap where everyone brought fabric from their stash they didn't want anymore. I wasn't going to participate since I didn't bring anything, but everyone insisted I take some. In fact, they were pushing fabric at me. There must be at least five yards in those bags. Sounds like a nice group, I said. I'm glad everyone was so welcoming. They really were. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Megan Hannigan was there. Megan from work? Daryl nodded. One and the same. Megan Hannigan started working at Civil Consultants, Inc. three years ago, fresh out of grad school. She was on Daryl's team and apparently brilliant, but her social skills were non-existent. I remember trying to chat with her at the 4th of July picnic last year. At some point, she just held up her hand, turned, and walked to the parking lot. That was the last anyone saw of her until the following Monday. I stretched again and stood up. She must have thought it was weird when you showed up to the meeting tonight. Yeah, she seemed a little discombobulated. But she brought over a cookie at the break and told me she'd missed me at the office. It was touching. Oh, and I joined the charity quilt committee, which Megan is on too. We're meeting Thursday night at Bean Traders. I think you know one of the other committee members. Carol something. Wilson? Carol Wolseley? I suggested. That's it. Very nice woman. She says to tell you hi, Daryl said. He stood and crossed the room. Give me a kiss. I'm going to go work on my quilt. I can't believe how fun it is to make wonky stars. I kissed Daryl on the cheek and turned to go upstairs to bed. Even though I was happy he'd had such a nice time, I felt uneasy. My husband is an attractive man. 
In fact, he's better looking now at 65 than he was when I married him. He's also funny and fun to talk to. And now he makes quilts. Let's face it, he's quite the catch. And I'm not the only woman who's aware of that. My guess is that the recently divorced Carol Wolseley is aware of it, too. Hey, this is Frances. I hope you enjoyed that excerpt from Diary of a Mad Quilter. A little background on the title. Some of you, like me, are in what we might call advanced middle age, and you might remember the film Diary of a Mad Housewife, which was based on the novel by the same name. Here's a little description. When Bettina Balzer begins to suspect that she is going mad, she starts a secret diary as a form of therapy and escape. Through her observations of herself and those around her, Bettina seeks meaning in her exceedingly dreary life. Her voice touches a timeless nerve, resonating on many levels, from the ever-evolving feminist consciousness to the gnawing existential search that is universal. That description is from Amazon, by the way. Mostly what Diary of a Mad Quilter has in common with Diary of a Mad Housewife is their titles, or at least part of their titles. Diary of a Mad Quilter's Marnie Fetzer is actually a pretty happy camper. Problems emerge in her life, but for the most part, they're the daily sort of problems that anyone might have. A busted pipe that requires a plumber's visit, an awkward social situation, a few extra pounds on her hips. The novel, which is a work in progress, is mostly comic, which means there aren't a lot of dark night of the soul moments. Writing a novel in diary form is incredibly fun, in part because the story focuses on daily life rather than big drama, which is to say that while there's a plot, it's a loose plot. Problems emerge and are more or less solved within the matter of a few diary entries. In Diary of a Mad Quilter, there are pressing issues. Will Marnie make a quilt that she's happy with in time for her guild's big show? Will she learn to accept that her husband, Daryl, has become a quilter and is quickly becoming a quilting rock star? Again, these aren't life-shaking concerns, but they do pull the story along. What I'm really interested in here is exploring relationships. Marnie's relationship with her husband and her relationship with her longtime best friend, Sheila. Also with her daughter, Kate, who is a modern quilter. Marnie is a longtime traditional quilter, and she's still working out her opinion on modern quilts. Novels do need to have problems in order to move the story along, and it's good to have one big problem that the story's main character, the protagonist, has to overcome. Usually when I write a novel, I know what the big problem is from the very beginning. I start out with what I call the big what if. What if I don't have enough money to pay the rent? What if I signed up to take my daughter's scout troop on a weekend camping trip and the other two parent volunteers got struck with food poisoning the first night in the woods 
and I had to oversee the kids all by myself, all 30 of them. This is a strategy, by the way, that I teach in creative writing workshops with kids, and they come up with all kinds of stuff. Like, what if I woke up and I was invisible? What if I woke up and I was living on the moon? What you do with those what-if questions, you flip them, turn them into statements. One day I woke up and I was invisible, and you have what you need to start a story, a character, and a situation. By the way, I have a book. It's called How to Build a Story or the Big What If. I wrote it for kids, but anyone who's interested in writing stories can read it. Just thought I'd mention that. With Diary of a Mad Quilter, I'm actually not sure what the big what if is yet, but I think it has to do with Marnie's quilting life. That makes sense. It's a novel about quilting. Yeah, I think maybe she's been in a rut for a while as a quilter. She hasn't pushed herself to try new things or learn new skills for maybe years. Obviously, this isn't a crisis of huge proportions. But when your creative life is a big part of your identity, feeling stuck can feel like a big problem. So, what if a lifelong quilter suddenly lost her quilting mojo? What can she do to get it back? And what happens if she doesn't? I personally don't keep a quilting diary. I keep a journal. Um, I actually keep a day book. I document my life pretty thoroughly in writing. I do know some quilters who do a great job of documenting their their quilt life, what quilts they're working on, the progress they're making. They cut out pieces of fabric from the you know, from their stash, from the pile of fabrics that they're making their quilt out of, and they put those in a notebook. I've tried that once or twice. I love that idea so much, but it's just one step beyond of what I'm going to keep up with, to be quite frank. Um, I can keep up with my day book in which I write down what we had for dinner, um, my journal that I keep, I do it sporadically. I'm just happy that I'm able to make time to make quilts. I think, yeah, I think the quilt diary, the time where you document your process is not something I'm ever going to do. Now, recently I went on a search for quilt fiction in diary form, but I haven't had much luck finding it. I thought I might be onto something when I happened upon Sarah's Quilt by Nancy Turner, but while it's a really enjoyable novel, I mean, I'm still in the process of reading it, I I really got into it, I haven't gotten to the part yet where anyone's making a quilt, and I'm almost done. I'm like two-thirds of the way done. Great book. If you're into historical fiction, I'd recommend it, but if you're looking for quilt fiction, you may need to look elsewhere, at least if you're looking for quilt fiction in diary form or any kind of quilt fiction. All right, there are some nonfiction books about quilts that incorporate women's diaries, such as Remembering Adelia, Quilts Inspired by Her Diary by Kathleen Tracy. Now, I haven't read this. If you have, I'd love to know what you thought. The story is that the Adelia of the title is a young woman named Adelia Harris who really lived. She lived in northern Illinois at the beginning of the Civil War, and this book does contain some of her diary entries as well as quilting projects and quilt history. Another book that I'd love to check out, and I'd love to hear from you if you have, in fact, checked it out or bought it, 
is called the Civil War Diary Quilt, 121 stories and the quilt blocks they inspired by Rosemary Youngs. This book apparently contains excerpts from diaries of various women written during the Civil War and sounds interesting. It it was published, I think, in the early 2000s. I may get a used copy of that. I don't think there's a new copy available. I think it's out of print is what I'm trying to say. Uh, There's a book by Barbara Brackman, which is Quilts from the Civil War, that also includes diary entries. That is a book I have. It's a fascinating book. Of course, Brackman is probably, oh, maybe the most prominent quilt historian of our time. There are a couple of other people who could compete for that title, but obviously she has published a lot. Always really interesting. The diary entries aren't about quilting. They're about life during the Civil War. Still very interesting stuff. I've yet to find a a published book that is actually a quilt diary, and I'd love to. And if you know of one, let me know. When I was looking around for quilting diaries, I came across an article from the 1999, I said that weird, 1999 issue of Uncoverings, which is the Journal of the American Quilt Study Group. And this article is about quilts and diaries, and um, I'll link to this in the show notes. The author of the article, Gail Davis, writes that for the 19th century woman, both writing in their diaries and making quilts often functioned as coping mechanisms. And I thought that that was super interesting. I think that quilting and journaling function that way for us today, for a lot of us. You know, the Quilt Alliance, a group that I am very much involved with, has a great oral history project that is turning 30 years old this year. It's called QSOS, Quilters Save Our Stories. And the Quilt Alliance provides a list of questions that interviewers, it's a grassroots project, so anyone can do these interviews. Anyway, the interviewers have a list of questions that they can ask the person they're interviewing. And one of the questions that gets asked is, has quilting ever gotten you through a hard time? And the, the replies to this are so amazing. The, the story that always sticks with me is from an interview that I think was, I mean, it may have been as recent as 2010. It may have been a little bit earlier. But the woman who was being interviewed was an older woman, maybe in her 70s. And she was from the Midwest, and she talked about how she went through this period of depression for seven years. And quilting is what got her out of it. And I thought that was amazing in so many ways. First of all, that, you know, I think that younger people these days are very open about mental health issues in a way that I think is absolutely great. Older generations, not so much. And this woman was a Midwesterner, so let me stereotype about Midwesterners, most of which I know from Prairie Home Companion, perhaps are not uh, known to be as open with those kind of feelings. Again, I, I feel like I'm referring to generations from back in the day. So that this woman, who clearly was born in the you know, in the 1920s or 30s, was so open about her depression and also about how powerful quilting was in her life and how it kind of saved her. Anyway, so that I, I see quilting for so many people 
as a way of, of, well, you know, a coping mechanism, a way to process feelings, a way to, if not process feelings, then channel them. You know, I think a lot of us channel our emotions into our quilts. So anyway, so I, I thought that was fascinating. The author, again, this is Gail Davis, writes about how both journals and quilts allowed women in the 19th century to be really creative in a way that they might not have been able to be in their, I say, external lives, their public lives. I'm going to read a little bit. She writes, quilting and journal writing could perform a second type of mediation in women's lives, that between the role expectation that they be stoic, self-sacrificing, and hardworking, and their desire for some measure of personal indulgence. Women could use the diaries and quilts creatively, designing them as they pleased, at least within the limits of their resources. Quilt making supplied a rare opportunity for aesthetic visual expression and a chance to beautify what was frequently the sparse life of early settlements. I thought that was really cool. And I think we see this in 19th century quilts all the time. This is something I've been talking a lot about lately. <laughs> My friends are probably really tired of me talking about this, but how 19th century quilts can be really funky, right? And so I have all these quilt history books. I love quilt history. And you look at these quilts and the kind of, the kind of precision piecing and, and you know, obedience to rules that is very much a part of 20, later 20th century quilting and 21st century quilting, that was not as big of a deal <laughs> in the 19th century. And, you know, Gwen Marston, uh, who wrote Liberated Quilt Making, she spent a lot of time studying 19th century quilts. And, and that's actually what got her thinking about liberated quilt making when she realized that a lot of these 19th century quilters played if you look through these quilt history books or go online and look at, again, 19th century quilts, you'll see that. You'll see all kinds of interesting design decisions, a lot of which feel kind of improvised. Some of them are improvised because clearly the quilter ran out of fabric. But some of them, you can see that the quilter thought, you know what, I think it would be really cool to try this here. My theory is, and probably there are people, I, certainly there are people out there who know a lot more about this than I do, but you know, in the 1920s and 30s, patterns, quilt patterns became more available. They had been in magazines for a long time, but now people, quilters could get patterns and quilt kits through mail order services. Newspapers were publishing block patterns and magazines were publishing block patterns and sometimes quilt patterns. And there were also feed sack patterns. And no, there was feed sack fabric. I'm thinking of mountain mist, so which was batting. And the mountain mist bags had patterns for complete quilts. And you can look at those quilts. They're beautiful quilts, you know. But that's where you start seeing some real serious attention to precision and doing it right and not deviating from the pattern because you had a pattern. Yeah, so I, I do think that you see in 19th century quilts a lot of creativity, and it's unexpected and really delightful. I'm going to finish up by reading one more excerpt from this article, which I absolutely enjoyed and recommend you look up. It's free. It's available on the Quilt Index. 
Davis writes at the end of the article, The desire to be remembered was perhaps the most important of all the motivations women felt to create and leave behind their domestic art forms. Coming full circle in this essay, one can say that the woman who sought to link her past with her present by creating diaries or quilts left a creative legacy or a record of herself as a past figure for future audiences to acknowledge. This inheritance serves not only to bind generations of a family in terms of connection and continuity, but it is also a rich source of information for today's historians. The diaries and quilts, now being collected and studied, mediate between their author's past, private worlds, and our present public knowledge. The records have transcended their author's particular lives to become a vital part of the reconception of the history of the United States. And I think most of us, whether we keep journals or make quilts or both, don't think of it as creating historical documents. That's not why we're doing it, but I do think that we are. Some of us, of course, will burn our journals before it's all over, and most of us will say goodbye to our quilts at some point or another. We, we often do immediately after we make them. We send them out into the world. But, you know, generations from now, someone else will hold our quilts in their hands. And I think that's a really good reason to label our quilts for, for history's sake, if nothing else. But also, you know, we work hard on our quilts. They are works of art and things of beauty. Why not claim them? Why not own our creativity as quilters? Thanks so much for listening. Again, I hope you'll consider exploring the Story Guild. Go to quiltfiction.com for more information. There's so much available at the Story Guild, not just Diary of a Mad Quilter, but the current Friendship Album novel, uh, Forget Me Not, also a work in pro- progress, but you can also, as a Story Guild member, have access to Friendship Album 1933, my reading of Aunt Jane of Kentucky, all kinds of stories and other fun things. So come check it out, quiltfiction.com, and consider subscribing. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next month. <music>